We're in a series, a 10-week series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're sliding into week five here this evening. And that means you've missed a lot, and you're going to have to go back and catch up because I can't recap it all. Um, But what I am going to do as I get started is I'm just going to read through a portion of chapter five in Ecclesiastes right now and uh, to sort of set up what we're going to talk about here this evening. And so I'm just going to read straight through it, and then uh, we're going to come back and we're going to unpack the first seven verses of this. And here's what it says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say to the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one who you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and and there are yet higher ones over them. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's vanity. Now, this word vanity has come up over and over. I think there's 30-some times it appears in this little book of Ecclesiastes. And we illustrated it. If you missed last week, we had vapor, a vapor, a mist going. A couple weeks ago, we illustrated it with soap bubbles, something that looks shiny and, and, and exciting and then pops very quickly. And the idea behind vanity, or some of your translations might say meaningless, is this idea of something you cannot grasp onto, something that does not last, something that's elusive. Um, a number of years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, because I was 18, I remember being 18, and I went off and I did something called a uh, discipleship training school, and I wanted to go suffer for Jesus, and so I went to Maui. <laughs> and I just want to show you a picture, because this is a very special memory. Um, this was one place where I think, I don't know, the second or third morning, I had my quiet time. And I had an old school camera. You remember the old school ones with film? Anybody? I had one of those, and, and you had to like set the aperture and do all the cool stuff and, and then take pictures. And, and the other ones with the mountains didn't come out good, but this one came out really cool. Um, so I'm just going to paint the picture for you. Because uh, um, 
as I was sitting there, I, and just like having this moment with God, I'm, I'm right on the beach, and you know, there's this beautiful sort of soft waves coming in, and across the way, I'm looking across the way from the little town of Paia, where I'm in, over at the, the mountain range, and like the IO needle, and all that, and the, the misty clouds just rolling over the peaks, and it's like perfect tranquility. And I had this just beautiful moment, and this quiet time with God, and my sandals, and cool Birkenstocks like Jesus had and just hanging out. And, you know, when I was 18, I remember um, when I went and, and did this missions training school, um, as I was trying to figure out, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Anyone else when you're 18? If you are 18, some of you are like, yeah, that's me. That's okay. You don't have to know what you're going to do with your life at 18. Take the pressure off yourself. Uh, it's good to go do some different things and see what God might have wired you up to do. But I remembered, like, literally thinking at one point, I'm like, I don't know if I should go do this or not, and trying to hear God and seek God's will. And I didn't, like, hear anything dramatic, but I had this distinct thought in my mind that was like, well, what better could I go do with the next six months of my life than, like, focus on my relationship with God? And so I went over, and it was a super time of, of like, um, you know those just sort of simple moments in your life? Have you had any of those? I hope you have. Where you just, there's a beauty, beauty and a purity of that relationship with God, and there's not a lot that, that's in the way, and there's not a lot of complication. But I didn't stay 18, and life didn't stay so simple. And I know there's lots of people in the room that identify with that. Because I ended up going on, we, we went from like this sort of idyllic location to, um, to Thailand, and I remember like, a few months later, I'm in Thailand. We're staying in this apartment building on a concrete floor uh, in about 90 degrees of heat, just sweating everywhere, fighting over who gets the fan for the little missions team. Like, we have a little thin camping pad on concrete. And, and outside, there's, like, this clanging music that goes until, like, 2 a.m. every morning. You're just, like, trying to stuff stuff in your ears so you can just get, catch a little bit of sleep. And doesn't life feel a lot more like that sometimes? Just noisy and chaotic. And then we went on to see some crazy things in Thailand and just the conditions and different things. And life feels a lot like that, too, because a lot of times it doesn't make sense. And for so many, we go on and sort of we kick into like it, we remember these these moments of peacefulness or moments in our life that we look back onto but then we we're always thinking well if i could just get to that thing i would have what it means to have success or fulfillment and that's what a lot of the book of ecclesiastes has been all about hasn't it it's been about the chaos sometimes of life. It's been about the fact that we pursue things in life that we think are going to bring meaning or think are going to bring purpose. We've, we've identified that thing as like a, a God-shaped place or space in the human soul, eternity in their hearts, something that only he can fill, something that, that there's a place that, uh, that we try to fill with everything in this world and it never actually fills that thing. And so we just keep spinning our wheels and thinking if I could go on to the next thing and the next thing, I'll, I'll find what I'm looking for. And now the first seven verses in this passage that we set up here is, is all about something interesting. Because in the midst of this conversation, 
And to understand Ecclesiastes, you have to understand that we in the West, we in America are very linear thinkers. In the Middle East, they're much more circular thinkers. And so a lot of these themes circle throughout the book. They just keep circling around. And so you remember where we were last week and where we're going, and that's why I wanted to set these seven verses up in context, because last week he starts off in chapter four talking about the oppression that he's seen and how life doesn't make sense so many times and how it seems so unfair so many times. And then he makes this, this powerful observation that all the work and all the toil and all the drivenness in our hearts stems from one person's envy of another person, that it's looking for our reference point and other people and saying, well, if I was just more like them, if I had what they had, then that would fill this place within my soul. And we look around and we use others as a reference point, and then we set off to try to get that. And when that doesn't do it, we pick a new reference point and we think that will do it. And he he identifies this envy thing in the human heart, the fact that we are driven by a love for money. And it's interesting because this section is bracketed by that, and it then comes back around, and it's talking about oppression. And what does it end with? The love of money. And the fact, the fact that those who love money will never be satisfied with it. He called this a chasing after the wind last week. Like, you you cannot catch it. There's never a finish line. There's never a point where you stop and go, ha, that's enough. That for those whose hearts are captured by their stuff, that there's something that goes off within us that is always going to be discontent, that will never get to a place of going, rest of peace, Maybe you've experienced moments like I had there, you know, with God on that beautiful beach. But then you've gone on and you've spent decades of your life pursuing something else to try to find that meaning. And you've experienced this a little bit. That there's, that there's this thing that you never can come to a point of fulfillment. In this section here, what he's going to do is take seven verses Seven verses that are all about how we relate to God, and they're sandwiched right in the midst of basically a conversation about being fixated on or worshiping our stuff. In the midst of that, he's going to say, hey, there's going to be something going on here, and if you don't pay attention to this, your relationship with God is going to be influenced by this. You're going to actually try to manipulate God for your ends and your means, and it's going to fail. And so we find this section in the middle about worshiping God. Uh, We have a saying around here. We've said it a lot. Some of you will know it as soon as I start saying it. Others are new, and you haven't heard it yet, but it goes like this. Life is for you, not... Yeah, very good. Life is for you, not about you. And this is such an important concept that, and this is a huge heart of the book of Ecclesiastes, that God, that Solomon, as he writes this, recognizes that life is a gift, that you are called to enjoy life as a gift with thankfulness in your heart before God. Um, That We've said last week, there's nothing wrong with stuff. It's when your stuff has you. All of a sudden, that's where, that's where you run into trouble. As soon as you flip that thing around, that life becomes about you instead of just a gift that God has given for you, things start falling off the rails. 
In fact, there's a famous uh, uh, Christian um, catechism. It's called the Westminster Catechism. And there's a statement in there that's so powerful. It says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But too often times we live like our chief end is to glorify ourselves and make life about us. And what happens is when we flip that around, when we flip that over in our hearts, we lose sight of purpose. We lose sight of meaning. In fact, we find that we cannot serve God. What did Jesus say? He said, you can't serve two masters. This is where so many people find themselves living. It is, you know... Church has this sort of place over here, but really what I'm doing is I'm serving achievement and I'm serving success and I'm serving materialism. And Jesus said, you can't do it. What's going to happen is you're going to love one and hate the other. You're going to be devoted to one and you're going to despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon, your stuff or money, possessions. Something's going to have a hold of your heart. And there's not room at the center of your heart for both of those things. And our temptation, as long as we think satisfaction will be found in advancement and success, in the sort of the pattern of vanity and chasing after the wind, the vapor, habel, the mist, that's the vanity. Our temptation will be to try to approach God, to manipulate him for our purposes, And so Solomon, in the midst of that, pauses and says, here, I want you to stop and pause and think a little more about how you approach God. And so I want to zero in on just a few things here. Back in one, he says, so guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Think about your steps. Think about your, pay attention to where your feet are. A couple of years ago, I broke my ankle really bad out mountain biking. And, I mean, it was a bad one. I had to have surgery and multiple pins and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I, after that, I cannot, something shifted in my mind. Because anytime I go hiking, or especially bike riding, but mostly hiking even, I'm just so aware of where my feet are. And if you've had an injury like that, you, you identify, right? All of a sudden, this new thing, you, you realize I'm not invincible. And you're very, you become very aware of your steps, And Solomon says, I want you to actually pay attention because where your feet go, that's where your life goes. And so many times when it comes to our relationship with God, either because of the chaos of life, that we see life doesn't make sense. Um, we pray about something and it doesn't happen. Um, we, we have something we're hoping for and God doesn't do the thing we're hoping he'll do. Life doesn't work the way we think it'll work. We look around life and see that life is full of pain. Or, or because we just get so fixated on what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to achieve and where we think we're going to find satisfaction in life, that before you know it, our feet lead us away from the things that stirred love and affection in our hearts for God. That we either sort of give up, we get disillusioned with God, and we kind of give up, or... or we just get busy and we get focused and we're going to see in just a second, we end up manip- trying to manipulate God for our purposes and using God instead of loving him, serving him, the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
and our feet actually take us in a different direction. We quit doing the things that we once did. Uh, interesting scripture, the end of Revelation, Jesus says what? Return to your first love. Do the things you used to do. That your heart's drifted away. And so many think times we, we make draw the wrong conclusions that oh, church or you know, spiritual disciplines or those things that just don't do it for me anymore. But what happens oftentimes is, is those things that stirred love in our heart for God didn't stop working, quote unquote. We stopped working them, if we're honest, right? My, my low, car, like, low carb diet didn't stop working. I stopped working it. Anybody else say amen to that one? And so we make the wrong conclusions about our life. And before you know it, our feet lead us on a path that's away from connection. We saw last week, away from community, away from relationship. And then we wake up and we're dry. We're at a desert place. Our hearts are like, God, where are you? And we quit doing the things that brought us closer to him. We keep, we've quit being in the word. We've quit seeking him in prayer. So he says, I want you to guard your steps when you come to the house of God. In fact, here's how I want, you to, I want you to draw near to listen, to listen. You know, one of the biggest instructions in the scriptures is to listen. In fact, it's at the beginning of what's known as the Shema uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what does it say? Hear, O Israel. Like, listen up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And it goes on to say, I want you to think about this, the, the revelation of God, the word of God. Meditate it day and night. Tell, tell it to your kids. Have conversations on the way to the soccer field. All over, you're going to be you're going to, I want you to be listening to the voice of God in the scriptures and listening to the Holy Spirit, what he speaks. Hear, O Israel. This is primary importance. Love God. Love God. And so Solomon says, I want you to be careful when you go to, I want you to be careful when you go to the place of worship, because here's what your temptation is when it's going to be to come to God. Your temptation is going to be to begin to try to manipulate him to get what you want. But instead, the position of heart should be one of humbly listening to him. You want to come before him and listen to him. So you can only understand so much about God from looking at the broken creation. There's plenty you can understand. Romans tells us that it shows us that there's a God who created it all. Like, you can look at the world and go, there must be a God. That's a logical conclusion. He's placed that much. But there's things that you cannot know about God unless he reveals it to you. And he claims that his word is his revelation of his character to you. And so you got to listen to him. you got to listen. you got to get to a place in your heart where you're serious about, enough about orienting your life to what he says. Where you're, where you're orienting your life towards listening to him. And I know sometimes it feels like it's hard to hear God, isn't it? Especially if you're in one of these seasons. And, and sometimes you're in a season because you, you wandered off on a, on a different direction. Sometimes you're just in a, in a difficult, tough season because life is, is tough. And sometimes our relationship with God doesn't always have all the feels and the Birkenstocks and the sand. 
and, and beaches and misty clouds, right? Sometimes it's noisy. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes we don't understand life. Sometimes God feels far away. I mean, great followers of Jesus, one after another, you look back at history, have talked about this. They call it the dark season of the soul. And there's something to it. That sometimes there's just seasons where you go through, and, and it's like this season where your soul just doesn't feel connected. Your goal is to keep listening during those times, to draw close. So he says, come, come. instead of just speaking out words, I want you to pause. I want you to listen. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 7, he talks about um, in our relationship with him, when it comes to following him, what wisdom is, he says, he compares it to a wise man and a foolish man. One builds his house on the rock. The other one builds his house on the sand. And they're both beautiful houses, you can imagine, sort of this idea of these great houses. You can never tell it on the outside, but the storm comes, and the one that's built on the sand collapses. The one that's built on the rock doesn't. And he says, the person who's the wise person is the one who hears my words and does them. That there's, there's a listening to what he says that then goes into action in our lives. And so he says, I want you to come before him and I want you to listen. Listen. And he goes on, he says, do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. A wise person listens first, speaks later. This is the theme all over scripture. A wise person listens. But the idea, the heart behind this, I think, did anybody have a, your mom used to say like, hey, watch your tone. Everybody say that, right? Could you start talking back? I'm like, don't you use that tone with me. And here's kind of the heart behind it is, is when you come before God, how do you come before him? Are you watching the tone of your heart, the tone of your, your voice? We have this really interesting thing in modern culture, I think, since the Enlightenment a couple hundred years ago, that feels like we as humanity has the objective right to, to judge the creator of the universe. To like look at him and go, well, I don't think that was smart. I don't think that was wise. I don't think that was good. Who do you think you are, God? There must not be a God. The one who created a universe so vast we cannot even comprehend it. In fact, Job, you remember the story of Job? It's a very hard, hard uh, book in the Bible. But the, basically, it's a little depressing because there's like the first chapter where it's set up and all this bad stuff happens to Job. Um, and then the next like 30-some chapters are, are, are like idiot advice from his friends. And I'm always like, okay, you read it, you read it, you read it, and it feels like a lot like us sometimes, you know? It's just like running our mouths and speculating and over and over and over again. And finally, you get to the very end of the book after all this long conversation. And God's like, time out. In fact, here's what he says. Speaking to Job, who's, who's the best out of all of them, because Job never accuses God. He, his wife keeps telling him, like, curse God and die. And basically, everything gets taken away from him except for his wife. Go figure, right? So, 
And at the end of it, through all the questions and, and going, God, where are you? God asked him some questions. It says, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Like, all the time, we're like, why, God, why? Why would you do this? He's like, here, let me ask you some questions. I want to put this in perspective. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Hmm. Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Remember any of that? Like as I created this universe and the angels, these spiritual beings, and you know what you see every time? Um, every time an angel shows up in the scriptures, you know what happens? Everybody freaks out. This is the created angelic spiritual being. And the angel shows up, and the first thing they invariably say is, don't be afraid, because it's freaky. And that's a created be- That's not God. God is the creator of all that, including the angels. And he says, let your words be few. See, there's a humility when it comes to, to, a, to approaching God that I think we lose so often in our culture today. God is set apart. He's holy. What you see is when a prophet Isaiah have a, a vision of God, he falls down like a dead man. You see this over and over in Scripture. And it's holy, holy, holy. And we think of that um, in religious terms. Literally, it means set apart unlike anything you can comprehend. The power and the vastness of our God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's like, whoa. There's an awe. There's a reverence. Even the New Testament, Hebrews tells us, our God is a consuming fire. Like there's something dangerous about God. In fact, I love this scene in Narnia where where, uh, there's like Aslan is the lion who represents Jesus in in the story. If you missed that, if not, it's been out forever. So if that's a spoiler, I'm sorry, but you probably should have watched the movies, read the book. Aslan, um, one of the characters says, sees the lion. He's like, oh, my goodness, a lion. Is he quite tame? And the answer is no, (laughs) he's not tame, but he's good. And that's what we know about our God. He's good. But don't think you you can wrap your mind around him. Have a humility in the way you Approach God, which was what? Why that first part of the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And your response is to love him. To love him. See, you don't come before God and manipulate him as you might be accustomed to do with other humans. You realize how many of your interactions with other human beings is, in a sense, manipulating them to think some way about you or do something for you. It's just the way it is. I'm not casting judgment. That's the nature of so many of our interactions. 
And we often come think of God as just another man, and we come before him, and he says, don't utter a rash word. Like, think about the way you approach God. See, in the ancient culture of Solomon's times, people would often keep little idols in their houses, carved stones that represented God's Baal and Molech and different gods that they had, the idol, false gods. And the idea was we can, if we could just like do something, we can manipulate them. We can manipulate them to do something for me back. If I could just, you know, if I can just serve them enough or maybe I'll bring them this little sacrifice or offering and then it'll be the rain. And if I keep them close, then they'll be on my team. Like sort of elf on a shelf, but little mini G false God. If I serve him and sometimes, I mean, it went to the extent of even, you know, sacrificing their children on altars, all sorts of awful, horrible things they would do. And it was the idea that somehow you could manipulate God into doing what you want him to do. And and Solomon says, don't think that. Don't think that. He says, verse 3, for a dream comes with much business or busyness. Literally, effort is the idea here. A dream comes with much effort, and a fool's voice has many words. Anybody watch The Simpsons ever? You remember when Lisa Simpson said, it's better to remain silent and to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt? That's wisdom right there. But we don't like silence, do we? It's uncomfortable. I remember one time I was younger, and I, uh, I had a friend that had a cabin up at Vega. And I'm like, can I go up there and spend a few days? I'm going to fast, and I'm going to pray and just be silent. And I remember, because I got up there, and it was cold. And you know what happens when you don't eat and it's cold? You get cold. And so I lasted. I was going to, like, you know, fast and pray for several days, be all spiritual, I barely lasted overnight. I like went down to the little lodge and I'm like, you know, trying to find some people, please. Silence is hard sometimes, isn't it? Now, some of you, you're really like introverts. You're like, no, (laughs) that's my dream. Others of you, you're extroverts. You're like, yeah, I can't be alone. But. I bet even for the introverts, especially in our day and age, like to actually make room to be still and know that he's God, like we're told to do in the scriptures. Do you find that hard? You know, you know the beauty of actually reading out of a paper Bible? I've found something for my life. Perhaps you have too. Apps are great. There's great apps, tools, translations. But if you notice, there's a bunch of other things dinging and buzzing and distracting you. It's hard to be silent. We don't like silence. And yet there's something about coming to God and just waiting on him. Not always be the one speaking. Where relationship comes. He says this, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. This is a theme in the Old Testament where they would actually take vows to God and and say, God, if you do this, um, I'll do this. And Jesus actually comes along later. 
Um, the principle is really simple. It's like what you tell God you're going to do, do it. Keep your word to God. Don't be an idiot, a fool. You can use that synonymously. But Jesus comes along. He says, I, I'll tell you what. You've heard this said. I tell you, don't, don't take an oath. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And the heart behind this is he's like, you, you can't even control, you know, the color of the hair on your head. Well, some of you do. But you know what I'm saying. Like, back in the day. <laughs> Naturally, you can't, right? Or the number of hairs you have on your head, for sure. And, and so there's, when he's saying, so just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because it's, it's about humility before God. How do you approach God? See, if you're always striving, if you're always on the side of thinking that you're going to find fulfillment in achievement and success and more, more and more, your constant temptation is going to be to try to manipulate God to get what you want. And some of you have had these conversations and arguments with God. God, if you would just do this, I promise I'll do this. And I know for so many people, the story is, uh, this is really common, like in war and like crisis situations. God, if you get me out of this, I'm going to. And what usually happens, because we're human, is we get out of it and we forget promptly what we said we'd do. Don't we? And this is a warning against that. Don't trifle with God. Don't think you can use him like those little idols of if I can just, you know, if I just like placate this little, this little idol enough, then we'll have good rains this season. My God is something to be trifled with in your life. You take him seriously. Keep your vows. That's what he says. In fact, James said this, and I think this is wisdom right here. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or, or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. It's going to be great. we got a great business plan. We're going to do it. We're going to conquer. We're going to dominate this year. He says, why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. True? True. What is your life? You are, hmm, this sounds a lot like Solomon to me. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Here's the heart of the message of what James, the brother of Jesus, picks up on from Solomon, is we approach God with a heart of humility. You approach him with a heart of humility. Not as some some force that can be manipulated or you can beg or bargain with him and if he'll just do this you'll you'll do that he's a good father he wants you to bring your request to him but he knows him before you even ask he goes on he says for when dreams increase and words grow many there is vanity but God is the one you must fear. This is a huge theme all throughout Scripture. Proverbs, Solomon, in another spot will say it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus says, don't, 
don't fear man. In fact, we see in Proverbs, the, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in God, that's where it's found. That's where safety is found. Jesus will say, don't fear man. What can they do? Only kill the body. That's kind of scary, Jesus. He says, but fear God, who has power over the body and the soul, who could destroy the soul in hell. See, see, here's our approach to God. And I think we, I think in our modern culture, we so flippantly approach God. We think of God like almost like, I mean, you've seen like Jesus is, is my homeboy, that t-shirt. He's not your homeboy. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming again to judge this world, to judge the living and the dead. What are you doing with Jesus? That's the question. The fear of God, proper fear. I'm not talking about trembling. See, we don't cower before him. In fact, we're told we can come into his presence with confidence because of the forgiveness of Jesus. Because Jesus, grace in our lives. This isn't like an abusive parent that you cower in front of. This is a loving heavenly father, but you dare not trifle with God and try to dumb him down to your level and try to think that you're on the an equal playing field with him. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I'm going to invite Winston up. Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That when it comes to approaching God in the midst of Solomon circling around all the vanity and where we're trying to find meaning and success, if you don't get this figured out and your heart is constantly thinking, if I just get there, then I'll find it. If I just get there, if I just get that, if I just marry him, or if I just, whatever. As long as you're thinking that way, that that is where your fulfillment in life is going to come, you will not approach God in the way that he requires, with humility, humbly asking him, let us be thankful. Life is a gift from him. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe. Would you stand? We're going to sing this song that has those very words in it. And I'll come back up and pray for us. So what do you do with this? Well, I think the, the simple thing is you orient your heart in love and obedience towards him. And I think that sometimes the, the sobering message of, of hearing this is, wow, I think I've, I've been living my life and just looking at God or trying to manipulate him for my purposes, my means. And you just bring your life in order. That's why I'm so proud of the people getting baptized. 
Because it is. It's a beautiful public declaration. It's also a step of obedience. And at some point, like how you feel about the things God is calling you clearly in Scripture to do becomes somewhat irrelevant. The question is, are you taking that step of faith and obedience? Are you listening to him? Are you obeying him in your life? Are you saying, yes, Lord, because you're God and I'm not? And so is there an area of your life where you know you're just, you've been trying to manipulate God or you know that there's steps that he's calling you to take or a direction he's calling you to orient your feet and you, you haven't been walking there? It's easy to come and feel like you're approaching him right because you come and you feel something in worship maybe when you know there's something he's been saying over and over, this is the way, walk in it. You have to take that step. And so that's just my prayer for you. My prayer for you if you don't know him, would be that you embrace what he's done, that you begin, that you become a follower of Jesus. That you say, yes, I'm going to follow you. That's where life's found. And if you are a follower, that you would orient your feet, you would guard your steps. You would live your life with God as your God, as your Lord and your God. I'm going to pray for you. Father, I just want to say we love you. We stand in awe of you. Would you rework that in our hearts? So many times we're too casual when we think about you. Would you work love and obedience that we would love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? That we wouldn't just have a a religion that has a, a form of godliness but no power. That we would know you and know your power. That we would follow you in faith and obedience. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.